Well, I usually deserve no introduction, but I get two tonight. That's good. Uh, it is uh, definitely a joy to be with you. Uh, you know, sad so, though the circumstances uh, are for our brothers and sisters in Cape Coral, uh, please continue to keep them in, in your prayers, and I hope to hear an update on them soon. Uh, I realize uh, this is uh, a little bit late, and uh, my people uh, at my church at home know that I am not uh, a night owl, and uh, so I will kind of forego some of the extra things here at the beginning. Uh, my excuse is that I'm still on California time, and it's almost 7 o'clock there, so it's like an hour away from my bedtime. Uh, <laughs> so those of you who have young children with you, I, uh, I commend you. Uh, I'll try to, uh, to, to keep the energy up. Uh, although I'm, I'm, I'm not used to soliciting as many amens as were solicited last time. So every once in a while, if you could just throw me one out of pity, uh, I would appreciate that. Uh, we've got a couple brothers at home that, that they're, they're always good with the amens, but I'm, I'm, I'm just not used to, to, to drawing them out uh, as, as we just saw. Well, after uh, Dr. Bauckham's excellent introduction to the sixth chapter of the Confession, it's my turn to address the second paragraph, uh, and uh, particularly the subject of man's fall from original righteousness. And uh, before we do that, let's just read a, a few verses of Scripture. I was going to read Genesis 3, 1 through 8, uh, the account of the fall but really, uh, let's just focus on verse 8 once again, and then we'll skip down to verses 22 to 24. In Genesis 3.8, we read, And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 22 then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This second paragraph of chapter 6 of our confession really seems to me to be largely transitional. Uh, it includes some information that we've already seen in, uh, in paragraph 1, such as the truth that man was created upright and original righteousness, but that tragically he did not remain in that blessed state. Uh, and then uh, in our confession's version of this paragraph, it also anticipates some truths that are going to come later. It anticipates the notion of the federal headship of Adam, which, again, Dr. Bauckham has promised he's going to flesh out more for us uh, tomorrow. But the idea of the, the federal headship of Adam over his posterity, the implications of his fall that is kind of just stated for us here, the implications of his fall for all of us. Uh, 
So I've decided, since this paragraph is, you know, largely transitional, just to focus in a bit more closely on Adam's actual fall itself, especially on the the nature of that fall and really the tragedy of it. Uh, As we just heard, this is the bad news chapter, and I guess what I'd like to do is just make that bad news worse (laughs) for us to, to dwell on it, right? We call this the fall of Adam, And we'll see here uh, the height that he fell from, and we'll see the depths that he fell to. But again, all to make the good news even gooder (laughs) when we get to it. And don't worry, we won't end on this note. We will end with some good news. Uh, But when you really think about the fall of Adam, uh, when you pause to reflect on what it truly meant, what it still means... Uh, Words largely fail, though we'll still have to try. There are a number of passages of Scripture that I I can never read without becoming emotional. Uh, One of those is the death of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy, outside the Promised Land. Uh, Of course, there are many others, but one of those is is this in Genesis 3. Uh, The account of man first hiding from the presence of his God and then being driven out from the presence of God. Again, words really fail. Uh, but I'll try to, to organize our thoughts tonight under, under three headings. And I'm going to do this, uh, again, as I've already said, it's late, but I'm going to do this by using three Latin phrases. Now, I'm not doing this to try to impress you. I am fully aware that I am in a context with a lot of homeschooling families, and so probably every third grader in the room knows more Latin than I do. <laughs> so, so I'm not trying to impress you. Uh, it's just there are, there are three phrases that you will come across, especially in older theologians, that I think uh, help to organize the, the flow of this, this paragraph for us. Uh, each of these phrases contains the word culpa, culpa. Uh, It's where we get our English word culpability from. It means a fault, or it means the guilt that comes through fault. Uh, Sometimes it refers to a crime that is committed that makes one liable to judgment, punishment. And it's sometimes used, again, by some older theologians as a term for what we're talking about, for the fall of Adam. It's sometimes referred to as the, the culpa, the guilt, the fault Uh, the crime of our first father. But these uh, three phrases, I'll give them to you up front so that uh, if you you care, otherwise you can just ignore them, Uh, but if you care and you want to to have those down, these three phrases are lata culpa, so L-A-T-A, culpa, and then two that maybe you might be more familiar with, mea culpa, and finally, felix culpa. And in each of these, I, I do believe I'd chosen them because they, they highlight a different aspect of the guilt of Adam's fall that, that we're now going to consider. Uh, so let's begin. The first of these, probably the least familiar of those phrases that I just mentioned, is the phrase lata culpa. Lata culpa. And, and here the idea is the gravity of Adam's guilt, the gravity or the severity of Adam's guilt. Lata culpa. It's a, a legal term that has a particular meaning in literal context, but literally, or in, in legal context, but literally it just means broad guilt, or by extension, grave or severe guilt. 
Right? It's used in a legal context to distinguish from minor crimes, from things that don't bring weighty judgment or weighty punishment. No, this is something that is a lata culpa, that is a severe, grave offense that deserves a, uh, a, a, a punishment in keeping with the severe nature of the crime. And, and that really is the, the, the point that I'd like to make first, because it is one of the, the first points of our paragraph, which we should probably now read. Uh, the second paragraph of chapter 6 of the Confession, our first parents, by this sin, which was described in paragraph 1, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon us, uh, came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. And again, this is stated fairly simply and straightforwardly, uh, such that unless we slow down and actually think more about it, the real gravity and severity, really the real tragedy of what is conveyed here could be lost on us. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, by this sin, the eating of the forbidden fruit, fell. Fell. What a tragic word. Fell. It's a simple word, but it's a good word. It's a descriptive word for what happened here. Again, what does it imply? It implies that Adam was in a high and exalted position, which he was indeed in such a high and exalted position. But it also implies that he suddenly lost that position and has now fallen. He is in a much lower state, right? We use such language to describe the downfall of great kings and empires, don't we? I'm preaching through in our church right now the book of Revelation. And in Revelation 19, that, that phrase, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Well, there, I would submit to you, was no greater fall in the history of humanity than this fall, and for many reasons. But uh, though more implicit in this chapter in our confession, there are several different aspects of Adam's fall, of Adam's sin that greatly exacerbate his guilt in it, right? That make this not just a culpa, but a lata culpa, right? A grave, severe guilt and, and crime, uh, now, again, we, we read and Vodi read earlier the account of, of man's sin in Genesis 3. And, and on a shallow surface reading, it doesn't really strike us as though something all that bad happened. Now, again, Dr. Bauckham teased out more of the significance of, of all of that. But, you know, here's Adam and Eve. Was this really all that bad? They took a delicious-looking fruit and they ate it. What's so bad about that? Did that really deserve the judgment that resulted from it? And absolutely, yes, it did. And as I said, several different factors highlight and intensify the guilt of this first sin, of this fall. So first, what are, what are some of the things that exacerbate the guilt of the first fall? And uh, hopefully we'll consider these relatively, well, I can't say that. I always say relatively briefly, and then it never turns out to be relatively brief. So I won't commit myself to that. Uh, ignore the, the fact that I just said that. Uh, but first, and, and again, my, my people in my church know uh, I have a, a tendency 
my first point is the longest point, and so everyone gets really nervous by the end of my first point. <laughs> that might be the case a little bit tonight, but I'll, I'll try to condense some of this for the sake of time. But, but this sin was so grave, first, I would say, because of its context. It was so grave because of its context. What was the context of Adam's fall? Well, of course, it took place in the Garden of Eden, in paradise, right, in a sinless, curse-free world. Uh, Adam's sin took place in a context of the recent omnipotent creation of all things by the Word of God, in the context of God's rich goodness in creating such a world for man and in giving him dominion over all of creation. It took place in the context of God giving man a helper suitable to him in every way. Right? He even had help in that. Uh, it took place in a context of, of God giving man free and, 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 and open access to every tree of the garden for his food, save only one. It's a context of, of rich goodness and generosity of the creature, of the creator to his creature. And, and what was so special about the Garden of Eden? Or I think some people wonder this, like, wasn't the whole world just one big paradise at this point? What was so special about the Garden of Eden? Well, it was planted by God, especially for man, right, in a particular location. But the, the most distinctive and blessed thing about the Garden of Eden was that it was a temple. It was a temple. And this is how the, the book of Genesis, and if you compare it with other scriptures throughout the Old Testament and on into the book of Revelation, this is how the, the Garden of Eden is described to us as a temple. And what is a temple? Well, specifically, it's a, it's a meeting place, a place for man to meet with God to worship his God, to commune with his God. Yes, because of sin, it eventually also became a place of sacrifice and all of that. But ultimately here, before sin, it was, that's what made the Garden of Eden special. It was a place where God himself, this good and sovereign creator, would come down and he would walk with man and he would speak with man. He would commune with man, a privilege that none of the other creatures had. Mankind made in the image of God so that there was something that corresponded uh, in his being with God so that he could communicate with him, commune with him uniquely. That really was the greatest privilege of man. Not dominion over creation, not any of the other blessings that he enjoyed. It was the ability to commune with his maker. But of course we know that. That's what we confess, right? What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what Adam was created to do, to have communion with his God. In such a context, how then could this man disobey this God? The context of the fall only highlights and exacerbates its, its guiltiness. Again, there was no excuse, if ever there was no excuse for sin. So the context, but secondly, the, the sin was also so grave because of its conception, right? How it came about, how it was conceived. What, what do I mean by this? Well, uh, and this is where, yeah, perhaps we could go down some rabbit trails, but, but the question is simply, where did this sin come from? 
Where did the sin come from? How was it conceived? How did it originate? Because, again, as our confession reminds us here, Adam and Eve fell from their original righteousness, right? Uh, we, had, we had just seen uh, in, in uh, chapter 1 that mankind was created upright and perfect, right? And this is the teaching of Scripture. It's the teaching of our, our confession that mankind was created originally not in some state of moral neutrality, but in a state of positive righteousness, right? As part of him being made in the image of God, right? In true righteousness, in true knowledge and righteousness and holiness. Now, of course, man was capable of of sin, as we've already seen tonight. He did have the ability to choose sin. He had a free will, But he was utterly without, and and I appreciate Dr. Bauckham making that point too, he was entirely without that tendency that we all have towards sin, right? That natural compulsion toward what is is wrong and what is against God's law, That innate propensity towards sin that he illustrated for us. No, if anything, mankind was created with a natural tendency toward sin righteousness as being in the image of a righteous God. And so this raises the question of how could sin arise within the heart, within the soul of a creature created upright and righteous? Uh, John Murray, and and I quoted John Murray earlier today, and I don't normally quote John Murray so much, but (laughs) for some reason he comes up in this context. But John Murray um, has a, a fascinating discussion of this question in an article that he wrote on the fall of man and, and there he identifies what he calls three insoluble problems connected with the fall. Three insoluble, saying these are ins- unsolvable, right? But they're, they're questions that we have. Uh, just briefly, one of them, the ontological problem, as he, he calls it. The question is that of, uh, as he words it, divine causality in connection with, with sin. Uh, you know, okay, where does something like sin even, even come from within creation itself from a good God? Uh, and of course, uh, that's the question of, of evil uh, that theologians and apologists have been struggling with for, well, since, since the beginning of time, really. Uh, but again, to, to an extent, that's already been addressed. This, the second insoluble problem Murray calls the dispensational problem. Now, that doesn't have to do with what we know as dispensationalism. It's just uh, how God uh, disposes of and, and carries out his plan. And there the question is, uh, again, as Dr. Bauckham mentioned, one that the scriptures don't give us a specific answer for, but why did God decree sin? Why did he decree to permit the fall in the first place? But the third insoluble problem that that Dr. Murray mentions is the one that that we're dealing with, and uh, Murray calls it the psychogenetic problem. So there's another fun word for you at uh, nine o'clock at night. Psychogenetic, uh, but just pull, you know, psycho, the the soul, sukos, and uh, genetic, you know, genesis, the origin. So it's it's that question of of how could sin originate within the soul of an an, an upright being? As uh, Murray words the question, how could a being perfectly holy and upright become sinful? How could sin originate in a holy soul and find lodgment and entertainment there? Now again, we can't really imagine this because we all have a, a sin nature. We all have corruption that we have inherited from our, our first parents and from this sin. We know that when temptation comes, there's something within us 
that wants to give in to that temptation. In fact, we don't even need temptations from without us. We just have temptations that come from within us. Adam, again, if we can imagine it, did not have that. There was no inward compulsion toward sin, toward that which is evil. No predisposition to that. Uh, Our souls are already preconditioned for sin, but Adam's was not. And yet the temptation came to man outwardly from Satan in the form of the serpent. Yes, that happened, but how did the inward concession to that temptation come, come about? Now, I'll disappoint you because I'll give you Murray's answer to that, but I've already told you he calls it an insoluble problem. (laughs) He says it doesn't have a solution. It's a a mystery. Uh, As he writes in answer to this question, where where could uh, sin come from within uh, a righteous soul? He says, we cannot tell. It constitutes an insoluble psychological and moral problem. But this, he points out, really only makes Adam sin all the more heinous and culpable. And then that's why I took us through that question, perhaps a question you haven't really thought about. But it, what are we doing here? We're trying to emphasize why Adam's sin was so grievous, so grave, so heinous. Murray writes, every reason was against the commission of sin for Adam. His fall was, in the deepest sense, an irrationality. This is irrational. There was no reason for it. Absolutely no reason for it. He writes in another place, Satan tempted man to sin. This temptation was the occasion of man's fall. It was not, however, the cause. No external power or influence can cause a rational being to sin. The sin of Adam was a movement of defection and apostasy and transgression in Adam's heart and mind and will. And for that movement, he was responsible and he alone was the agent and subject. The fall then was a complete moral revolt against the sovereignty, supremacy, authority, and will of God. Uh, Bavink agrees. Uh, Murray has a quotation from the Catechism by James Fisher. The sin was aggravated in being committed when man had full light in his understanding, a clear copy of the law in his heart, when he had no vicious bias in his will, but enjoying perfect liberty. And when he had a sufficient stock of grace in hand, whereby to withstand the tempting enemy in being committed after God had made a covenant of life with him and given him express warning of the danger of eating the forbidden fruit. But again, it's just exact. That's what Fisher says. This sin is aggravated by all of these things. There was no inward compulsion as there is with us. There was no reason at all It was irrationality, and again, as Murray words it, a complete moral revolt against the sovereignty, supremacy, authority, and will of God. Adam did not have to sin. He was not even created more likely to sin than to not. He simply chose in his willfulness and his pride and his ingratitude to God to commit this sin. 
to defy with a high hand the express command of his creator. Again, it's nothing less than a complete moral revolt against God. This is, again, what paragraph one already said. Adam and Eve, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law. So the context of the sin only aggravates its guilt. The conception of the sin, because there was nothing uh, within man that compelled him to sin, and simply out of his own will chose that. However we understand that, that aggravates the guilt of the sin. Thirdly, more briefly, it's comprehensiveness. It's comprehensiveness. The bare outward act of eating the fruit wasn't the only sin. (laughs) Uh, As we've just seen, there was something that happened first within the soul of Adam and Eve that moved them to that, to that act of disobedience. Uh, Here, let me just quote from William Ames' Marrow of Theology, because I think he makes this point well. He writes, and this was a, a document that was very important behind the first London Confession and then parts of the second as well. He writes, committing the transgression was accomplished in eating the forbidden fruit, which was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the first motion, uh, and actually take note of that language, we're going to come back to that language tomorrow in paragraph five, but he says the first motion or degree of this disobedience necessarily went before the outward act of eating, so that it may be truly said that man was a sinner before he had finished the outward act of eating. This is why the very desire which carried Eve toward the forbidden fruit seemed to be noted as some degree of her sin. Genesis 3.6, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and most delightful to the eyes, and the fruit of the tree was to be desired to get knowledge, she took and ate. Therefore, the first degree and motion of this disobedience was an inordinate desire for some excellency by lifting up the mind which that she might obtain the forbidding of God being laid aside through unbelief. She would test whether the forbidden fruit had some power to confer such an excellency. From this was the grievousness of the sin. Ken highlighting the, the severity of it but this is still aims. From this was the grievousness of the sin which not only contained pride, ingratitude, and unbelief, but also by violating that most solemn sacrament, it showed, as it were, a general profession of disobedience and a contempt for the whole covenant. This was made all the more foul by how much more perfect the condition of this sinner was. So I know that's older language, but he's saying that the point of it, you know, what was, there was the decision to eat the fruit before they bit into it. And what was it that led them to that? He points out here pride, ingratitude, unbelief of the warning of God, uh, and just a general contempt for God's covenant. Uh, James Usher expands on these thoughts even more in his Body of Divinity. I won't take the time to read them now, but he actually, I would commend you to to go look it up. He actually goes through each of the Ten Commandments, and he shows how Adam and Eve's sin was actually a violation of each and every one of the Ten Commandments, and in multiple ways. 
Right? When you really think about it, it wasn't just the bare, simple act of taking a bite of delicious-looking fruit. There was, it, was a, it was a heinous act of sin in its context, in, uh, in its conception, and in its comprehensiveness. Right? It wasn't just one outward violation of one arbitrary rule, but as James puts it, failing in one point, but truly becoming guilty of the whole of God's law. So the gravity of Adam's sin, highlighted because of its context, because of its conception, because of its comprehensiveness, and finally, and certainly not least, because of its consequences, of its consequences. Uh, these consequences are summarized briefly here in, in our paragraph. Our first parents by this sin fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. Uh, the third paragraph states further some of these consequences of, of Adam's fall. He and all mankind with him became the subjects of death and of all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Again, that's summarizing a lot of the consequences of this fall. The fall from original righteousness, of course, entails a, a descent into the opposite state, right into the full corruption of nature. Here at the end of the paragraph, a brief statement of total depravity, but that'll be expanded on in, in paragraph four, so I won't do it now. But what a fall from being inherently upright and perfect, having the law of God written upon the heart and power to fulfill it, now to being dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. Every sin that has ever been committed from the smallest to the greatest can trace its origin here to this one sin, to Adam's fall. From every lie, to every murder, to every act of adultery that tears a family apart. From your children fighting over a toy, to the Holocaust. Every single sin traces its origin here. Here, too, can be traced every misery, spiritual miseries, sorrows, heartbreaks, anxieties, fears, temporal miseries, childhood cancer, the decline of age, poverty, hunger, hurricanes, and eternal miseries, every wail of torment, every gnashing of the teeth in the lake of fire throughout eternity can trace its origin here. All of it ultimately came from that first bite of the forbidden fruit. Again, words fail to describe the severity of this fall, but I haven't even yet mentioned the worst consequence of Adam's fall. The worst. Our first parents, by this sin, fell from or their original righteousness and communion with God. And communion with God. 
That's what they fell from. That is the worst consequence of the fall. Mankind, again, made uniquely to live in communion with his God. Mankind, for whom God created a special garden sanctuary where he would meet with him and fellowship with him. Mankind, again, whose chief end, whose ultimate purpose for very existence is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What do we now read of him? Arguably the most tragic words in all of scripture. And the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. And then, even more strongly, he drove out the man. Fallen from his communion with God. Driven out from the blessed presence of God in this life. And eternally shut out from it in the next. Or so he fully deserves. This is the lata culpa of Adam's fall, the grave guilt. Because of its context, because of its conception, because of its comprehensiveness, because of its consequences. But as already hinted at, and this is where the bad news gets even worse, as already hinted at, this guilt is not just his alone. And so we move from lata culpa, the gravity of Adam's guilt, to mea culpa, mea culpa, the transmission of Adam's guilt. Uh, this is probably a phrase that you've heard, mea culpa. <laughs> mea culpa simply means my guilt, my fault. Or perhaps more accurately here, it should be nostra culpa, our guilt. Because as our paragraph asserts, our first parents by this sin fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them. Whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. This is the principle of federal headship. That again will be developed more in the next paragraph of the imputation of Adam's guilt and the conveyance of original corruption uh, that we'll hear about more. Uh, I'm, I'm tempted here because, uh, as I said this afternoon, uh, earlier this afternoon to the pastors, I, I love this doctrine of federal headship. Uh, I find it personally and pastorally so comforting. And so I'm tempted to. I almost said steal some of Dr. Bauckham's thunder as if I were capable of such a thing. <laughs> I flatter myself. <laughs> but I, I don't want to encroach too much upon his territory for tomorrow. Uh, so I, my only point here will be to emphasize that grave as Adam's guilt was, for all of those reasons that we just saw, grave as Adam's guilt was, deserving, fully deserving as it was, of the complete, unalloyed, and eternal wrath of a thrice-holy God. Every single one of us is every bit as guilty as he, and every bit as deserving of judgment as he simply by being descended from him. Each and every human being who has ever been conceived, with one important exception, <laughs> 
Each and every human being who has ever been conceived is precisely as guilty of Adam's sin as he was. Even before we have committed a single sin ourselves. Even before we've committed a single sin ourselves personally. Now, that strikes just about everyone as extremely unfair. (laughs) That's extremely unfair. Why should I not only die physically, but be made subject to all miseries, uh, spiritual, temporal, and eternal? Why should I have to spend an eternity of conscious torment in hell for the sin and guilt of someone else? Well, I'll leave most of the rest for the sessions tomorrow, but suffice it to say for tonight that you must believe not only that this is true, that you are guilty for Adam's sin, You must believe not only is that true, but that that is just. It is just. Not just fair. It's just. Because if it is unjust for you to be punished for Adam's sin, then it is unjust for Christ to be punished for your sin. It works the same way. If it is unfair for you to go to hell on the basis of Adam's guilt then it is unfair for you to go to heaven on the basis of Christ's righteousness. You cannot have one without the other. And so while this is, again, not the most uplifting chapter in the confession, it is essential. It is absolutely essential. But largely, even this objection, oh, that's not fair. Even that whole objection is is really hypothetical for every single one of us sitting in this room today. Because the truth is that all of us have committed actual personal sins ourselves. And any single one of those fully justifies our judgment at the hands of God as well. To the original guilt imputed to us from Adam, we have each only added to that guilt with the guilt of our own personal sins. We have only compounded the guilt of our original inheritance. Normally, compounded interest on an inheritance is a very good thing. In this case, it is not. That is bad news indeed. The lata culpa, the grave guilt of Adam's original sin, has become mea culpa, has become my guilt, our guilt, and we have only added to it sin by guilty sin. But we really can't end the day on that note, (laughs) can we? And so while it's, again, not really directly contained here in paragraph two, let us conclude by considering Felix Culpa. Felix Culpa. The overruling of Adam's guilt. The overruling of Adam's guilt. Now, some of you may have heard this phrase. And again, if you're one of the third graders here and know Latin, you're already way ahead of me. But this, this phrase, Felix culpa, or Felix culpa, it's spelled F-E-L-I-X, that phrase is something of an oxymoron, of a contradiction in terms. Uh, Felix means happy. Uh, by extension, it often has the connotation of lucky, fortunate, beneficial. But how could this fall of Adam, how could his guilt, how could his culpa be described as happy, fortunate, beneficial. Happy fault is how Felix culpa is often translated. 
or even fortunate fall. If everything that we've already said about Adam's fall is true, that it is infinitely culpable, that it is the source of all other sin, that is the cause of human death and all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, if it was such an affront to the authority and will of God, how could it be described with any sort of of positive adjective? Well, this phrase does have a, a long history in Christian theology, and the basic idea of it goes back at least as far as Augustine, but the basic idea is simply that tragic and heinous as Adam's fall was, right, taking nothing apart from that, away from that, not excusing it in the least, not mitigating the heinousness and the tragedy of it in the least. But nonetheless, there are ultimate goods that come about as a result that would not have come about had the fall not taken place. And so in a sense, it is a Felix culpa. It is a happy fault. It is a fortunate fall. Now, I think with at least that much we can all agree, uh, because we've already read that at the end of paragraph one, haven't we? Right? After all, uh, the confession has just said, which fall God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purpose to order it to his own glory. And Dr. Bauckham was completely right. Uh, yes, we can, we can know this. Ultimately, this is what happened. Because of the fall, God's glory, and I love the way he put that, is maximized. <laughs> it's maximized. Now, again, there's a, a whole lot of other questions that could be asked, uh, things that, again, I completely agree with him, are, are legitimate questions, can be valuable questions, but not things that should distract us from bigger questions or divide us. Uh, there is in this, if you look it up later in the, the Felix Culpa tradition, uh, it's connected a lot with the Lapsarian controversies and all of that. Uh, but at the very least, yes, even through the words of our confession and the whole tenor of scriptures, we can say that this fall was in a very true sense happy, not in and of itself, but in the end it was a means of achieving the greatest of all goods the glory of God, the glory of God. Theologians have speculated for centuries about what would have happened had there been no fall. If there were in any specific ways in which God would not have received glory had the fall not occurred. Uh, this, again, is part of Anselm's great work on the incarnation, Cordeus Homo, Why the God-Man. He asks questions like this. If Adam had never sinned, Would the Son, the second person of the Trinity, never have been incarnated? Would he never have lived, never have died, never have risen again? Would we lack some understanding of or appreciation of God's attributes then as a result? Would we never truly know his holy wrath or justice in the judgment of the ungodly? Would we never truly know his mercy and grace to sinners whom he has chosen by his own free and sovereign grace to save? What would we lack if we had never seen the fullest display of God's justice and mercy and wisdom in the cross of Christ? Having never experienced the depths to which Adam's fall had plunged us, could we ever have fully appreciated the heights 
to which Christ's life and death and resurrection restore us. Because that is what Christ's work did. As that second Adam, he did restore us from the fall. He restores all who trust in him from the fall of Adam and all of its effects. He restores for us all that Adam lost for us in his fall. He gives us eternal life instead of eternal death. Eternal joy and blessing instead of eternal misery. He brings us eternal confirmation in righteousness, which again is a higher state even than that in which Adam was created. Yes, created in original righteousness, but able still to fall. How blessed will it be because of the work of Christ when we are confirmed in righteousness and there will never again be the possibility of fall from that righteousness. Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. And best of all, the highest privilege of all, Christ restoring for us eternal and perfect communion with our God. Communion with our God, eternally and perfectly. Some of these questions are, as I've said, speculative. I'm unsure how far they can be wisely taken. They are theoretical because as this paragraph teaches us, Adam did fall. And praise God, Christ did come. But at the very least, we can say with our confession that God was pleased to permit the fall, that he did so according to his counsel, which is wise and holy, and that he purposed to order the fall as he alone could do to his own glory. And that really is enough for us. That is enough for us. Adam's fall was a grave fault that brought about our own fault, and yet in the end can perhaps even be considered a happy fault, because God overruled Adam's fall in history for his people in the work of the second Adam, and he even overruled Adam's fall in eternity past to bring 